you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up. 1 John uh, chapter 5. And you're like, oh, we were in 4 last week, but we've arrived in 5. Congratulations, we've done that together. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd love a free one, just raise your hand. We would love to gift one to you this morning. Uh, we, we've been... We've arrived in chapter 5 of uh, this letter that John is writing, uh, and we're reminded that, that he's writing to a series of house churches that are spread all across uh, what's called Asia Minor, uh, which if you're trying to uh, figure where that is now, it would be uh, roughly around modern-day Turkey. And, and who he writes to can be appreciated as, as we include ourselves in the encouragement, and as we include ourselves in the challenges uh, that are expressed in these words, because if you've spent really any considerable amount of time with us here at Merge uh, in this series, uh, you can see some very, uh, you can see some similarities that John's audience has with our own very heart, our very own hearts, and and what he does is he helps us understand the Christian life roughly in three lanes of the same road, okay? So think of it as a three-lane highway. And, and he will say, when it comes to the Christian life, these three things are imperative. That you would know Jesus, that you would obey God, and that you would love others. Those three things. He says, as it comes to what does God want from your life, these three things. That you would know Jesus, you would obey God, and that you would love others. And he structures these lanes through uh, two very important and helpful word pictures when it comes to who God is, the nature and the character of God. And, and the first one he will spend in uh, chapters roughly one and two, and he will say uh, something along the, this, well, he'll say this exactly, that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And so, so what he says is his light exposes uh, but not necessarily to shame or to guilt you, uh, because that already rests over you, uh, but, but that rather he exposes what is dangerous and deadly that lurks in the darkness, uh, that his light brings us. And so to walk with God is to walk in the light of his word. And when we walk according to the word, we see the freedom that he brings us. Uh, but if, if our attempt... To walk uh, is to walk in darkness and also experience the freedom of walking in the light. We will always have this struggle going on inside us because we will believe that the intention of the light is to rob us of freedom. It's to rob us of what we think is uh, what we want, uh, what we think will bring us the most satisfaction. And then the second half of of this letter uh, poses a question that, that we've been trying to consider for a couple of weeks now. Uh, chapter 3 opens up with this, this question. He says, let us consider the love that God has given us that we should be called children of God. And so he introduces, not only is God light, but God is love. And he says, let's, let's consider that for a moment. Let's rest in that. Let's, let's be washed by that And it came into great focus last week in particular. We spent our time in these 14 verses paying attention to how God has loved us. That, that He displays His greatest amount of love 
for us by sending Jesus to rescue us. And, and, and says, in this is love. Not that, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. That we, no matter how great you are, no matter how talented you are, no matter how kind you are, you did not force God into a corner where He says, well, I guess I have to love them, right? It's not the way that that works. That we love because God first loved us. And, and so one of the, uh, the primary ways we respond properly to God's love is how we carry love out with other people. Uh, there's, there's no uh, separation. Where, where we are this morning are going to be some truths that Christians will display as evidence of being God's children. Uh, in fact, this, this will include uh, right beliefs about God and holy living before God. And so we just respond, as John carries us, we just respond into, are these things marks of my life or not? That's, that's what we're going to be dealing with. So let's pray. Father, we come to you. We're thankful that you love us. And we confess that we don't deserve that love, but yet you, you give it to us through your Son, Jesus. And we pray this morning we would be able to make much of Him. That we would be able to see Him more clearly. And, and because of that, we can see you more clearly. We pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your Word today and that we would be listening. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Okay, so as we walk through these verses this morning, I want you to be mindful of, of how John has been repeatedly drawing our attention these past chapters uh, to, to right belief uh, and to right love and to right behavior without drawing us into a very rigid form of legalism that cares more about the law than it does the heart of the gospel. Uh, in fact, those two things, they don't stand opposed to each other. And in fact, they support each other in unity. And so what we're going to see in these five verses are, are six birthmarks of a life that is changed by the love of God. A life that is changed by the love of God. And, and now, this is where we come frequently when we gather together. Because the Bible will tell us, James in particular, he will say, hey, there are those who believe that they are saved, but they are not saved. They believe that they were walking with God and yet their hearts are very far from them, even though they may they may go to a church, they may wear a Christian shirt, they may do all of these religious activities, but where the heart is matters. And, and where John leads us today is just an awareness. He says, I want you to be aware of these birthmarks. These are markings that you have been changed by the gospel. And so, so let's go. Chapter 5, verse 1 he starts off with everyone. So who? Everyone. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Okay, we're going to come back to that, because this is it's a huge, huge statement that He makes. His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and, and this is the victory that 
uh, has overcome the world, our faith. Then we get to verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So let's just work through this together. we got six, six birthmarks. Number one, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So this is an important place to start because true Christianity always revolves around Jesus. Always. There is not a version of true Christianity that doesn't begin with the role of Jesus. Okay? If it begins with you, then you've all of a sudden missed the mark of it. It always begins with Jesus, who He is, what you believe about Him. In fact, the New Testament um, Gospels, if you just pay attention to, to what you're reading, they're just a case study and asking this simple question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Very lovingly, God brings the disciples as these, these side characters uh, in the Gospels to help us understand that they are just like us, asking this very legitimate question, who is Jesus? And in case we were confused about it, Jesus steps in and He explains who He is. He explains why He is there and what He is trying to accomplish. And, so, and I think if you walk with Jesus long enough, uh, it's hard to miss him from saying, if you want to know God, you have to know me. If you want to know the Father, you only do that by knowing me. If you want your relationship that is broken because of sin restored, I am the way to make that happen. And so so the title Messiah is, it simply means uh, promised deliverer. Uh, now, granted, there's there's nothing simple in what Jesus has done for us. In fact, in order for Jesus to fulfill that role as our promised deliverer, He has to fulfill three offices, and He has to do it with perfection. Uh, I think in, in, in the fall, uh, we're going to spend some time in the book of Hebrews, and, and what Hebrews does is it, is it helps us understand these three offices in, in incredible ways. Um, but, but what Jesus has to do with perfection is fulfill three, three offices for us. And, and the first one is... Uh, it's prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. God sends Jesus into our story to, to, to be the ultimate in these th- distinct ways. That as prophet, he speaks by revealing the truth of God. Namely, he reveals to me the way of salvation. As, as priest, he is ordained to offer sacrifices on man's behalf. And now his, his sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, on our behalf, makes the way for our salvation. And then as king, he reigns and he provides for and he governs those in his kingdom toward tyranny. And he reigns through love, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, toward freedom. Uh, and he reigns through love and not, not tyranny. Well, I messed that one up pretty bad, right? And, and I, know, I know that thought of of Jesus being king uh, here, it seems strange as we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave and nobody tells us what we don't want to hear and what we should do and not do. Um, and I think, I think our greatest struggle with Jesus as king is, is because, uh, especially when it says he's the king now and forevermore, uh, is that that's actually the best case scenario for us. That's what we need 
the absolute most, but, but we struggle with it because we've never seen earthly kings do this with perfection. We've never even seen fictional kings uh, operate and serve and govern and care for his, their people with perfection. And so, so we, we struggle to get our heads around this incredible truth. But nonetheless, Jesus has to come as prophet, priest, and king, and he has to fulfill those offices with perfection. And so as John says, we, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is helping us identify our great need for Jesus' movement in our lives. And so we get to ask ourselves some questions. Like, number one, do, do I believe that Jesus is my great teacher and that he has the words of eternal life? Do, do I believe that Jesus is the sole substitutionary priest and accept Him to offer sacrifices on my behalf? Do, do I believe that Jesus, who is now exalted in heaven, who once bled on the cross, do I believe He is the King of me? Do, is His law my law? Do I desire... Uh, it, do I desire to entirely submit myself to His governing? Do, do I hate what He hates? Do I love what He loves? Do I desire to see His kingdom come? Do I desire to, to see His will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Do I truly desire those things? And that's a, it's an exposing question. Because if not, then at least you know that I want Him to be something else for me. I want... And I think this is where our friction comes in because I want Jesus, but I also want all these other things. And so, so before we move ahead, let's understand the importance of where John is leading us. If you can heartily and earnestly say, I accept Jesus to be my prophet and my priest and my king, that God has anointed him to, offer, to, to fulfill those offices in my life, then you, by faith, are a child of God. But if you come through and you say, I don't, I want versions of that, and I want pieces of that, but then I still want my own self and to be in control. And very lovingly, John is saying, you have not accepted Jesus as your Messiah. You haven't. And so number two, he will say, we've been born of God. He says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And, and now I think, being born of God and believing in Jesus, they, they are intertwined in the Bible and they can't be separated. Uh, that born of God looks to the work of God to transform your heart. Uh, believing in Jesus looks to our response as we hear and as we believe the Gospel. And so as we read the New Testament, we get a sense of the transformation that God is producing in our rebirth. And it's dramatic. The Bible will, will tell us that, that we read of, of natures that war against one another. We get, we get uh, to see that the enemies pursue our death because of our allegiance, that our allegiance stands uh, and it stands against their master's values. We take note uh, that we didn't just need to be cleaned up because of our sin and because sin makes you dirty. No, sin doesn't make you dirty as much as it makes you dead. So we didn't need someone just to step in and clean us up. Rather, what we needed was for death to occur so that we could be made anew. And so, so as God transforms us into the image of His Son, which is, by the way, what He wants with your life. That's His promise to you. 
that I am transforming you into something beautiful. This should look differently than your life before coming to Christ. It should. And, and now some changes can be more noticeable depending on how visible your sin was. For instance, Jesus can come in and if you were a thief, you could stop stealing and that becomes pretty evident, the change that Jesus makes. You, you could have been a drunkard before Christ and Jesus comes in and changes your life and, and you stop drinking to excess. You could have lived as an adulterer and Jesus could have come in, changed your heart and now you don't sleep around anymore and you, you start to honor your spouse with how you treat them. But I think... I find my, my greatest struggle with transformation comes to, to when it comes to uh, how it pertains to my desires. Because you can live a life very clean-handed, but a heart that is very jacked up. And eventually, what happens, Jesus says that just, it comes out. Like, it, it'll eventually take control of your life. And so, so if I give my heart to God, here's what this means. If I give my heart to God, I don't have the right to take it back again. And that's the friction of a lot of our lives. I give my heart to God, and then at some point, I want to take it back. And that's, that's not the agreement. He doesn't give me new life to do the same things that once led me uh, to breaking my heart, putting it in need to be recreated in the first place. You can't do it. He gives me a rebirth because He loves me. And what He's doing with my life after seeing my need for Jesus is about putting His love on display in my thoughts and in my words and in my actions. And so I can't say, God, here's my heart, and Him take it, recreate it, and then Him hand it back to me and say, all right, I'm going to go do whatever I want now. Because eventually what's going to happen? I have to give Him my heart again. And he has to keep recreating Number three, we love the Father and we love His family. Everyone, verses 1 and 2, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love, uh, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey His commands. And so, so here's what this means. That, that knowing doctrines of the Bible, having faith that is bold, walking in this evangelistic fervor and with generous hands, those are all really, really, really good things. But they're not ultimate things. What God wants the most out of our relationship with Him is our heart in His hands. Always. Always. He wants us to walk in love because without love for God, even the good things has zero value in His eyes. Zero. We, we do it, if you do things out of uh, obligation, that's, that's not growing in love. It's not growing in love. And so, so the word love here appears uh, between, in chapters 4, 7 through 5, 3, the word love appears 30 times. And so it's telling us it's pretty important here. It's pretty important. In fact, David Platt put it this way. John makes an interesting statement in verse 2 that at first seems out of order. He says, we can know that we love God's children when we love God and obey His commands, but is, is it out of order? I mean, shouldn't he be saying that we know we love God because we love His children? I don't, I don't think so. 
I think John's point actually is grounded in Jesus' teaching of the two great commandments in Matthew chapter 22. My, my love for others is the natural complement and companion to my first love for God. So, so when I love God, I will keep His commandments. And keeping His commands involves loving others, His daughters and His sons in particular. So John's argument has tremendous practical application. First, it will protect us from sentimental and emotional understandings of love that, that leave God's character and His commands out of the picture. And then secondly, because my love for God guides my love for others, I will seek their ultimate good. Not that which is temporal or passing. I will not seek to make others comfortable while neglecting their greatest need, which is eternal salvation in Christ. I may clothe and educate and feed them, which are all good undertakings, but I will strive above all others, act, Uh, I'm sorry, above all other acts of kindness to help them come to know love and to trust in Jesus as the Son of God and their personal Messiah. After all, as our Lord said in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, for what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? So that becomes our, should become, our pressing desire. Number four, and this is probably the hardest one of all the six. We obey His commands. We obey His commands. And, and now let me, before, we, before we get into that, let me just side note this just a little bit. Okay? We're not talking about living in perfection. Okay? That's a very pharisaical kind of life. Okay? We're, we're talking about desire to live according to His Word. We're talking about a desire to say what He has taught us, how He calls us to live, is the healthiest most joy-filled, peace-filled way of living. We're not, we're not walking around saying, hey, because when we talk about obey His commands, we believe perfection is required, which it was and has been fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? So I don't want us to walk out of here very, very legalistically trying to um, watch each other so that we can beat each other up, you know. We're talking about desires. It says, by this... We know uh, that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey His commandments for this is the love of God that we would keep His commandments. And, and then I love this, and we're going to get to it, but His, His commandments are not burdensome. And so for, for many, this is our sticking point because we, we want to live in freedom, but we also want to do whatever we want to do. And we don't take into consideration that there are things that lead us to bondage. We don't. In fact, I, I've been spending a good amount of time, I think for the last two months now, uh, specifically in Romans 7 and 8. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and this has kind of been the argument that's been brought to the surface, and it exposes me uh, greatly. And I'm so appreciative that God exposes me in these words because we're talking about wrestling with our two natures that... Uh, Paul will Paul will bring this moment. He's like, I'm just. He goes, I'm just horrible. He goes, What I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I find myself doing. He'll say things like, Okay, uh, I, I, if 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 sin is running rampant in my life, there's a problem. But at the same time, it exposes the grace of God and it displays it. So so what's my relationship with that? And he comes in. He goes, You don't you don't sin so that God can be more forgiving. 
But he says you at the same time have to deal with what's going on at the heart level. You have to deal with what's going on at your gut level, at your appetites. And so, so I think we, a lot of us, we want to live in freedom, but we also want to do whatever we want to do, not realizing where that's leading us. And, and so, so the secret of joyful obedience. Okay, I heard a pastor say this a long time ago. I think the next time I use this line, I'll say that I've always thought. Then eventually I'll say, you know, here's what I think. Um, but, but he says the secret of joyful obedience is to recognize it as a family matter. Recognizing it as a family matter. We show our love to God, not by empty words, but by willing works. And so, so we're not slaves obeying a master reluctantly. We are children obeying a father who we love. And our desire is to, to make the family name mean something. It's to take pride in it. It's to understand that sometimes my actions and my reactions will say something about my family. And so, so as we grow, as we grow in love, and as we trust, and as we appreciate what God has done for us, uh, we see how He loves us, we see how He protects us, all of a sudden, obedience changes form. Because we put the right kind of desire behind it. In fact, Warren Wiersbe said, An unsaved person considers the Bible an impossible book, mainly because they don't understand its spiritual message. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 to see that. An immature Christian considers the demands of the Bible to be burdensome. Uh, he is kind of like a child who is learning to obey, who, who's constantly asking, why do I have to do that? Can, can I just do this instead? But a Christian who experiences God's perfecting love finds themselves enjoying the Word of God and truly loving it. He does not read the Bible as a textbook as if he was stuck in class. But as a love letter. That God is saying, I am expressing my love for you in these words. And I wonder, this is just your own little rhetorical question, if you find yourself saying, I don't really read the Bible, make the excuse, I don't have the time, I wonder if where you fall in those three. Because if you're not a believer, you say, this is impossible. I can't, I can't live up to that standard. And if you're immature, you say, that's really too hard to live. But if you, do, if you are walking in the light of the gospel, I think our desires change. Now, I love the, the end of verse 3 because John reminds us something that I think we too frequently and easily forget or ignore uh, that his commands, when we're looking through the lens of the gospel, they're not burdensome because Jesus has taken the burden off of us and he's put it on the cross. He has. John Piper once wrote, what you desire to do with your whole heart is not burdensome to do. Is that true? It's not burdensome to do. Think of your, think of your favorite ho- uh, uh, hobbies. Think of your favorite... You, you ever... You're like, ugh, have to watch Netflix again. No. Because what you desire to do with your whole heart, it's not burdensome. Other people will look and say, I don't know how you can do that. And you're like, it's not hard. I, I love to do those things. 
And I think sin, it, it grows out of self-pity and this, this feeling of owedness, right? I, I'm not getting my fair shake. I'm not getting my needs met. I've, I've had a hard life. God owes me. People owe me. I owe me. And that's the heart and the attitude of entitlement. And it's dangerous. And it's deadly. That when we take that feeling and we try to walk in the commands of God, we, we grow very frustrated because we rarely will be able to walk in joy and find ourselves, um, we find ourselves weighted under the burden of trying to live under perfection. And this is why Romans 8 uh, is a powerful chapter because Paul will, will say that, that sin can only be cut off at the root if we expose ourselves constantly to the unimaginable love of Jesus Christ. That the more you are exposed to that, the less control sin has in your heart. And I think what we do, again, is we try to flip that. Because we think, well, if I can sin less, then clearly God will love me more. And it doesn't work that way. That, that shaming sin, putting sin to death, is this constant gaze at Jesus. And saying, whatever that temptation is, Christ is greater than. And it's easy to say. That's like, that's like a, a simple equation that Jesus is greater than this. But until we start to see Him more clearly, we will always struggle with this seeming to be a better fit. So the logic of gospel, shame in our sin says, Look at what God's done for me. How can I respond properly? And it's a family matter. Then number five, we have overcome the world. We have overcome the world. Now, that's it's one of those lines that people are like, I don't, I hear you. I see it in the Bible, so I know you're not making this up, Brandon. But boy, I don't feel that most of the time. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, how do you become a child of God? Through Jesus Christ. That's it. So it doesn't matter how, how capable you are, how strong you are, how smart you are, how good looking you are. doesn't matter. Because we walk in the wake of the great overcomer. So He is the one. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the, our, the world our faith. Wearsby again says, if the old nature is in control of us, we disobey God. But if the new nature is in control, we obey God. The world appeals to the old nature. We can go back to John chapter 2 for that. And tries to make God's commandments seem burdensome. It's the whisper of the enemy. That seems really hard. And you're not that good. That seems really difficult. And you're not that smart. But our victory is a result of faith. As we grow in faith, we grow in love. And the more you love someone, the easier it is to trust Him. And the more our love for Christ is perfected, the more our faith in Christ is perfected too. Because faith and love mature together. Faith and love mature together. And what John says in verse 4 is liberating. Because as Christians, we don't have to, should not walk around defeated. Because Christ has made us victors. 
He has. In fact, he's, he's defeated every enemy and we share in His victory. Now, by faith, we claim His victory. Faith is not simply saying that what God has, uh, says is true. Faith is acting on what God says because it is true. And so the shackles have become loose and the blinders have been removed and we no longer pine after and love stuff. Rather, we, with holy affection, we, we pine after and we love God. And the new birth makes all of those things possible. And faith gives us eyes to see it clearly. Let's start wrapping up. we got number six, right? There's six of us, six things. Number six, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Who, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so where do we go? We, we've come full circle, right? Because someone says, well, that seems like a redundant point. Well, maybe it is because John says it in verse 1 and then he comes back to verse 2, um, verse 5, that those who confess Him as Messiah give evidence that they've been born of God. Now, in verse 5, those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God understand that this faith commitment is the means whereby we gain victory and overcome the world. And this is what I love. I, want, I just want to draw us to a, one word in verse 5. Because it doesn't change for us. It's the word believe. It's not believed in the past tense in the sense that, that, that those who believed in Jesus but that believe in, in the present tense sense of the word. That it's ongoing. We, we continually confess Jesus as Christ. We continually walk in what He has done and who He is. We continually see ourselves in the light of God's great love for us. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That never changes for us. So this is where we land. With a little bit of a ring, right? This is where we land. We, we ask ourselves these six things. Is this true about my life? Do I believe this? Because the greatest danger is you walking out of here thinking you are one thing when actually you are not that thing. One of the easiest things in our nation at times is to say, I'm a Christian. And yet it doesn't cost us really anything to say that. Nobody's, nobody's hunting you down for it. In fact, at most, some people might be irritated that you said it. But the fruit that comes out of our lives, the, the markings of our new birth, means something. It means something. So I think we can look at those six items and say, okay, is that, is that true of me? And in some ways we'd be exposed, like, okay, I don't obey God's commands. And then we have to ask, well, why is that? That first mark and that sixth mark are the most important. Who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to me? 
Because if He isn't my prophet, and if He isn't my priest, and He isn't my king, then He can't be my way to a restored relationship with God. And if we can't respond correctly to that question, then none of these other questions are going to matter. Because everything is predicated on understanding and believing that about Jesus. I love you guys. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. As we wrap up, let me make a couple things available. If you need prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, we want to help you in that process. Maybe you have, but your heart is very far from Him right now. And you just need someone to come alongside you and love alongside you. We want to do that for you. Let's pray. Father, we come to You and we thank You because You are good and You are holy. I pray that we would walk in the light of the true Gospel. That Your love for us matters. And our response to that love matters. And I pray You would help us see Jesus more clearly as, as the Savior of our souls. It's our great King. Who we get to live in His kingdom. We get to celebrate that we are found by Him. That He has chosen us. Father, I pray You would give us a distaste for trying to live in two different worlds at the same time. That through Your merciful light, You expose what is deadly. And I pray that our taste for those things would become bitter. And then as we live in the light of Your love, I pray that You would give us a desperate desire to proclaim Your goodness. Because You are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, Amen.